the systems to defend Ukraine, even while meeting our own security needs. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 13th of October. It's Thursday morning, which means a warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. Economic data from the US on Wednesday showed producer prices rose more than expected in September. The producer price index, which reflects prices paid to US producers for goods and services, increased 0.4% in September from a month earlier, exceeding economists' forecasts of a rise of 0.2% and reversing August's decline. Minutes of the Federal Reserve's September monetary policy meeting show the Fed is fearful of doing too little to stamp out soaring inflation. Minutes from the meeting, at which the Fed implemented its third consecutive 75 basis points rate rise, show policymakers committed to purposefully tightening monetary policy in the face of broad-based and unacceptably high inflation. The account says many participants emphasised that the cost of taking too little action to bring down inflation likely outweighed the cost of taking too much action. The Bank of Korea raised interest rates by 50 basis points to a 10-year high of 3% on Wednesday. The BOK has raised its policy rate by 2.5 percentage points since August. And inflation in India accelerated to a five-month high in September, driven by higher food prices. Consumer prices rose 7.4% last month from a year earlier, up from 7% in August. Food prices, which comprise about half of the inflation basket, rose 8.6% in September. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Wealth Investment Strategist Enzio von Fahl and Frederick Chu at Magnum Research. Discussing Hong Kong's future as an aviation hub is Paul Weatherhilt, Chairman of the Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association. And if you want to get in touch, then please text 6393 email moneytalk at rthk.hk. We're on Facebook, Money Talk, on RTHK Radio 3, and on Twitter at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In a choppy session on Wall Street, U.S. stocks oscillated between gains and losses before closing lower for a sixth consecutive day, as the latest economic data shows U.S. inflation is still running hot. The S&P 500 lost a third of a percent, falling to a two-year low of 3,577. The Dow shed 28 points, or 0.1%, to close at 29,211. The Nasdaq Composite edged down by 0.1% to end at 10,417. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index fell half a percent. The FTSE 100 dropped 0.9%. Hong Kong stocks continued their slide towards 13-year lows on Wednesday morning. However, markets rebounded from their low point in the afternoon session with speculation rife that China's so-called national team had stepped in to limit declines ahead of the National Congress at the weekend. At the low of the day, the Hang Seng had tumbled 394 points, or 2.3%, to the worst level since October 2011. 
The benchmark index was just 190 points away from hitting a 13-year low going back to May 2009. However, stocks rebounded in the afternoon session in parallel with a strong rally on the mainland, with the Hang Seng closing with losses of 131 points, that's 0.8%, at a new 11-year low of 16,701. The tech index recovered from losses of 3.6% to close a third of a percent lower. The Shanghai Composite, which was down 2.5% at the low of the day, recaptured all of its losses and more in the afternoon. It closed 1.5% higher at 3,026, above the psychological level of 3,000. And all week on Weibo, mainland stock investors have been clamouring for the national team to intervene to spare them from mounting losses. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil was down for the third straight session, settling 2% lower at $92.45 a barrel. Gold climbed 0.4% to $1,675 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell four basis points to 3.9%. More chaos in the UK government bond markets. The UK 10-year gilt yield briefly surged to its highest level since 2008, with confusion over the ending of the Bank of England's emergency bond-buying programme tomorrow. The yield, though, ended the day unchanged at 4.43%. And in the currency markets, the euro this morning trading at 97 cents. The Japanese yen hit a fresh 24-year low against the US dollar yesterday. The yen broke past the low of 145.9 touched last month. And that prompted Japanese authorities to intervene to try and support the currency. It's trading this morning at 146.76. Sterling had a volatile session before ending the day 1% higher. It's at $1.11 and 8 Hong Kong dollars and 71 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan, that slipped to 7.17 and a half versus the dollar. Bitcoin this morning, that's at $19,100. And uh, a mixed picture around Asia Pacific stock markets this morning at the open. In Australia, the SX200 is up a third of a percent. The K225 in Japan is down 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea is off 0.4%. And I'm afraid futures markets pointing to more losses for the Hang Seng. Looks like it's going to open 100 points lower at around 16,600, heading very fast towards that 13-year low. It's time to welcome our regular Thursday morning commentator, wealth investment strategist, Enzio von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And sitting here with me in Broadcasting House is Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. Welcome back, Frederick. Morning, Peter. Uh, Let's start with that economic data from the U.S., The producer price index, which reflects prices paid to U.S. producers for goods and services, it increased 0.4% in September. That was above economists' forecasts of a rise of 0.2%, and it reversed August's fall in the PPI. On a year-on-year basis, prices rises slow to 8.5% in September from 8.7% in August, but still higher than economists' forecasts of uh, 8.4%. Um, Enzio, we've talked about obviously rising inflation in the US a lot over recent weeks, but it does seem to be that um, it's very persistent, isn't it? And the Fed still has a lot of work to do. 
I think you're right. I think it's it's very interesting, as you write, that the three- and five-year inflation expectation gauges are expected to rise, mm. not fall. And I put that down to three factors. One is the negative Fed, the, 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 the real Fed funds rates, in other words, the Fed funds nominal rate minus the inflation rate is actually negative at about 5%. Secondly, you've got the economic time in America standing at an excess demand for money, excess demand for goods, and that um, excess demand for goods will keep driving her demand-driven inflation for now. I, I stress for now. And finally, you've got supply-side constraints. Gold, man and God-given. Um, gold, obviously, is one. Oil cartel, Ukraine's war fueling grain and gas prices. And the God-given ones, El Nino, La Nina, wreaking havoc on our agricultural sector. So it's, you've got the negative Fed funds rates, um, and that is the key one for me. And, and the rising structural inflation, the supply-side inflation, that means no 2% inflation can be reached under present policy tools. So all these rate rises that we're seeing, and it looks like we're going to get a fourth one, futures markets pricing in 82% chance of another 75 basis point rate hike next month. They're not having the desired effect, are they? I don't think so. And I think that you'd have to actually, just to get to zero, my calculations suggest that the Fed funds rate would have to rise sixfold to, 2 .2, uh, to, to another 2.25% or something like that to get um, that real Fed funds rate at zero. So, so mm. Leaving all the numbers aside, they have a long way to go before the real Fed funds rate turns positive and really starts affecting inflation. Frederick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, in half winter time, we, we didn't see any uh, indication that the energy price is going to go down, given mm. the uh, tensions over in uh, 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 Ukraine is still ongoing, and the uh, you know uh, uh, reduced production of the OPEC plus is just you know adding more, adding more pressure on the on the on the energy price. Uh, given the um, uh, you know you, I, I think Europe is is going to be uh, you know the, the first had to be to be impacted the most. Mm. Um, more, more than U.S., uh, but to be honest, inflation at this point of time, we, we're seeing it going a little bit of downward on on a month-on-month -month basis. Uh, but then it's it's probably wouldn't help too much in terms of you know uh, the uh, the overheat of the economy. So we, we still have a uh, hundred thirty basis point to go uh, for the rest of the year uh, as for the uh, uh, you know Fed uh, 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 rate target. So. Um, so whenever we look at this each month, the changes are pretty minimal, aren't yes. they? It's still at a high level. So when Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said this week there's been no progress on inflation, she's probably right, isn't she, when we look at the data? Yeah, if we were looking at a 2% uh, target inflation, it's, you know, eight, eight, whether it's 8.5 eight or 8 or even 7.5 doesn't really mean <laughs> a anything. A long way away. Yeah. Yep. And so where is this all going to end? The inflationary momentum is building in the U.S. economy. And as, as we just said, it's it's pretty persistent. So it's the Fed is just keeping on um, hiking quite aggressively. We're going to get another fourth consecutive 75 basis point rate increase next month. How long can the Fed keep hiking um, and inflation without inflation coming down before something in the economy and the financial markets break? Well, something is already breaking in the jobs market. You're finding less vacancies beginning to through, you're finding more negative forecasts on the 
economic growth forecast, excuse me, redundancy of the U.S. economy. And so I think that's already happening. Mm. And I, I believe it's just going to, as our listeners know, my belief is we're going to end up with a worldwide stagflation. In other words, slowing growth, slow growth, sluggish growth, and continued high inflation, whether it rises a little bit or falls a little bit, does, is really immaterial, as we just discussed. It will remain sticky. So I mm. call it sticky stagflation. Frederick, if we look at some places in the world, there is stagflation, isn't there? The UK probably is the prime example um, at the moment where, you know, the economy is ground to a halt. Uh, the latest figures show a decline in the UK economy and inflation, uh, one of the highest in the, the developed world. Yeah, I think uh, apart from uh, uh, the, the employment uh, uh, that that's you know uh, being being suppressed uh, at the point of time. I, I think another factor it's uh, it's also on the property property market um, that that's been cooling down. I mean, especially when uh, you know interest rate hike, it's going to put more pressure on homeowners or home buyers. Uh, if we look at the U.S., the uh, cost of uh, buying house has been uh, rising for for the past several months. And same as Hong Kong, I mean, if you look at the property price, has been uh, you know toning down for like twenty uh, percent or so. Um, you know. As, as real estate, it's it's uh, it's, it's pretty pretty big uh, contributor to to GDP. I think uh, you know uh, mo- in most places most mm. places around the world. Um, so I think that's going to also put some pressure on the overall economy. Okay, let me ask you, Enzio, about the minutes then that also came out uh, overnight. Um, policymakers basically saying they're going to purposefully tighten monetary policy. In the face of broad-based and unacceptably high inflation, the account says many participants emphasise that the cost of taking too little action to bring down inflation likely outweighed the cost of taking too much action. So no sign of a pivot there. I I would give it a C. C stands for confusion, of course. they, it's 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 going it's going all over the place with too little action, too much action for as long as necessary. Maybe we should not overshoot the runway. I'm not getting a whole lot of leadership on this one, and that's why I give it a C, both in terms of a grade, but C for confusion. Um, that was our piece last week. That it just and also this intellectual herd immunity. If you're given one hammer, you have to look for one nail. The hammer, of course, being withdraw money, the nail being demand-driven inflation, but the supply-driven inflation cannot be taken away because it's a very different animal. Yeah, I, th- I think it, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's just a, a reinforcement of what the Fed's been doing, uh, and it's mostly aligned within the, uh, most of the board members. Um, which is, you know, I, I think the market pretty much expected it to be. Uh, one good thing is uh, some of the, the, the there's some noises uh, saying that, uh, you know, uh, aside of, you know, uh, hiking rates, we still have to pay attention to the potential impact that's on the on the on the recession. Uh, it mentioned recession, I think, 11 times over over a minute. So, um, you know, uh, a little good sign, I would say. Okay, let's turn our attention to the markets, particularly here in Hong Kong. Hong Kong stocks, as you heard earlier, earlier, continuing their slide towards 13-year lows. Uh, At one point, the Hang Seng was just 190 points away from hitting a 13-year low, going back to May uh, 2009. There was a rebound um, in the afternoon session. Um, I want to read you an email that's come from a listener. Uh, Ravi G, um, who's listening here in Hong Kong. Thank you, Ravi, for your email and also for your uh, nice comments about money talk. Um, and he refers to our discussion yesterday, the Hang Seng Index dropping below 17,000. 
And he says, this is not an issue of short-term declines in valuation, but a case of the Hang Seng being a disastrous place to have invested for near on 12 to 13 years. Isn't a discussion worth having about who is responsible for the poor performance? This is not about immediate term interest rates, but about those who create the index and push for listings in Hong Kong, having done a very poor job in creating an environment for Hong Kong to be a good place for the average person to invest. And he asks, what role does HKEX have in this? He says the HSI constituents have failed miserably over a long period of time and the people responsible for attracting shares to list in Hong Kong should have a responsibility to the people of Hong Kong and around the world who have invested money in this market. The domestic Hong Kong market has been a tough place to do business for near on four years. With the Hang Seng being such a poor long-term investment, is Hong Kong becoming uninvestable? Well, Enzio, do you want to start with that? Thank you for that, Peter. <laughs> um, first of all, the, the, the blame game for me really begins and ends with Carrie Lam. I think that she has is is more than responsible for a lot of the mess that we're in, especially on COVID. I spoke with some mainland friends of mine and said, does the mainland wish us to have these very strict COVID rules here? And she quite quickly said, no, that the mainland doesn't expect that. So it's again this emulating this preemptive obedience that is driving everybody here nuts, trying to be more Chinese, more mainland than the mainland. The second thing is that our own lethargy here, if you don't like change, you will like irrelevance even less. Well, I'm afraid that that's what's beginning to happen because the governments of past have not really instituted any change. They keep on hauling in experts and panels and, my word, whatever they haul in to get another view to then duck behind. Um, but I'm not seeing any changes here. Education, social housing, English is going rotten. Um, so those are the things that make the fund manager worldwide um, just say, well, why be in Hong Kong? And it's, I, I, let's, there's, some, there's some hope under the current government. At least steps are being taken, and we'll see what the, what the policy address says. I believe it's next week. Um, but it's, the, the past is a predictor of the future, and the past has been pretty rotten in Hong Kong. Frederick, what do you think? Well, to answer Ravi's <laughs> question, is Hong Kong, first of all, becoming uninvestable? No, I, I'm, I'm not too uh, pessimistic over, you know, how Hong Kong is performing, uh, both in capital markets and, and fundamental. I think, uh, you know, we have been uh, on, on, on zero COVID uh, policy, which is very, very restrictive, but we, we're opening that up. Uh, I think tradi traditionally Hong Kong has been, uh, you know, a bridge uh, between China and the foreign markets. Uh, and this bridge, it's obviously fading away uh, mm -hmm. in, in some sort of functions but um, uh, in some essential areas such as offshore RMB hub etc I, I think I think this still exists and will be existing uh, for the longer term being um, looking at the markets I think um, 16 and a half thousand it's somewhere that we are looking at as a um, as a main support it's also a 25 years hundred points away from that this morning yeah we see a, a slight rebound uh, over this low yesterday and um, uh, we, we have we have to observe longer and see if this uh, level can be can be can be hold on to, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think uh, one of the main catalysts could be uh, the uh, national congress uh, coming up next week, uh, which hopefully uh, you know we, we see some 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 uh, you know new elements coming in uh, after the meeting uh, for for things open uh, for things coming up in China, and that would uh, probably uh, bring up to uh, Hong Kong as well. I mean, Ravi's got a point, hasn't he? This is not just short term. It's no. not just this week or this month. Uh, going back, you know, the last four years, really, uh, Hong Kong's been a poor uh, performer. And you could say 
uh, maybe going back 13 years now because we're back where we started from. What's going to change that? What is it that's going to um, end this bear market that we're seeing in Hong Kong um, and get things back on track again for, for investors? I think from a global perspective, you have to have global growth coming back. And I don't, I'm not seeing that, frankly, for a couple of years. I think we're going to have the sticky stagflation. And that at least means that the stage is set for Hong Kong to have a rebound. But by that time, Hong Kong must, for instance, have reinvented herself to start with proper, not just with studies and experts saying in all these hubs that keep on abounding. It's Hub Kong now in, in today's lingo. Um, but actually to start getting on with it. I think far too much faith has been put on the Greater Bay Area. Why not look at Hong Kong itself and start getting moving in Hong Kong on industrial policy, on English, on uh, removing some of these trade barriers here and just getting, getting on with it? Yeah, I, I think uh, Hong Kong policymakers will have to, you know, really rethink the position in Hong Kong where, where changes is, is, is coming into, uh, as Hong Kong has always been, you know, in the middle of uh, China and foreign. Uh, the, the positioning in the past and positioning in the future could be, uh, could be different, but, but we need to have a firm uh, uh, standpoint, uh, at, you know, particularly at this point of time. Okay, well, thank you both very much. That's Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research, our, our regular Thursday commentator, wealth investment strategist, Enzio von File. 5, 6, 7 a.m. Radio 3. This Sunday morning on RTHK Radio 3, join me, Colin Aitchison, for Vintage Chart Toppers. The song is ended, but the melody lingers on. Here we're going to look at the hits, those million record sellers from the years the 1920s to 1950s. This was the era when you had exercise winding up the gramophone, having to get out of your couch to turn the record over. There was no MP3s. There was only 78 RPM. There'll be a few memories and a few ha-ha laughs. That's the Vintage Chart Toppers, Sunday morning, 8.30, here on Radio 3. Lingers on. Coming up to 8.25, well, this is Paul Weatherhill, who's chairman of the Hong Kong Air Crew Officers Association. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, listen, your organisation, which represents the majority, I think, of Cathay Pacific's uh, cabin crew here in Hong Kong, so you've said uh, Cathay Pacific's unprepared to regain its industry-leading position and is threatening the status of Hong Kong as an international aviation hub. Why do you say that? Well, um, it's the pilots, I should just emphasize, necessarily than the, uh, the cabin crew. But uh, about in 2019, we had about 4,000 pilots. And now we're down to 2,500. That's a big drop in uh, aviation experience. I think it represents about 20,000 years of experience of aviation in Hong Kong and the region. And I think the company is going to find it very, very difficult to uh, regain the capacity that it had back in 2019. It takes a long time to train pilots. But Cath now, Cathay says in its response that um, it doesn't agree with your analysis and it says uh, that it intends to run services by the end of this year. 
uh, one third of pre-pandemic um, levels and it's actively um, recruiting now. It's looking uh, uh, to the company shed a record 5,900 jobs in October 2020, but it's looking to, to rehire or hire new staff to, re- to replace them. So surely isn't it going to just be a matter of time and it's going to get back on track? Oh yeah, it's a matter of time, but it's going to take six years. One third capacity isn't much ambition. You know, if we're going to support uh, the Hong Kong hub and the Greater Bay Area, we need to be back to 2000 and growing some more. Mm. Uh, It's not really good enough to be thinking, well, we're okay at uh, one-third or even a half capacity. I mean, over half the captains have left. It takes a long time to replace those, a long, long time. Do you think some of them will come back? Uh, It's possible. It's possible. Um, I think the trouble is, two years ago, Cathay Pacific made it pretty clear that uh, um, they were going to favour cost-cutting over uh, retaining their talent. Um, You know, back then, you know, you talk about fear and greed in the markets. I think there Mm. were people sitting around thinking, how how scared are we of the pandemic? But they got a bit greedy. They actually thought, well, let's really dig into these long-term cost savings that we wanted to do. And they took a huge chunk. And uh, at that point, it became almost impossible to keep everyone together. Contrast that with 2008, um, when the chairman uh, back then, Chris Pratt, uh, specifically said, we're going to keep the team together. Next year, bumper profits. Mm. That's not going to happen this time. And Mm. I'd be interested to hear from the shareholders. Cathay is pretty much divested itself of a a big airline, 40%. It's going to take a long time to recover that. Competitors will come in. Uh, I'm not too sure who's going to fly all those uh, slots at the airport, who's going to use that third runway, not Cathay Pacific. So what does it mean then for our status as an international aviation hub, or at least an Asian aviation hub? It's a good question. I mean, if you look at Shenzhen and Guangzhou, uh, they're very much uh, domestically focused. Uh, Cathay Pacific's always been the international hub in the Greater Bay Area. I think that could change. I really do. I think that could change. I think we've uh, opened the door to the competition. Um, Mm. And Cathay really needs to get its act together. There's still pilots leaving. Uh, The association would like to sit down with the company and see if we can uh, put a stop to that. Uh, Even now, in fact, even specifically now, because the world is uh, opening up, there are far more opportunities for pilots. Cathay Pacific have made it pretty clear uh, where they stand on that. Do you think we can get back to where we were before the pandemic? Hey, it's Hong Kong. Everything's possible. I I, I really do think we can. Um, With a bit of will, we want to sit down, help the company do that, uh, collaborate with them. I mean, two years ago, that's the other thing they did. They just stopped collaborating with us. Um, Mm. So, you know, that makes it difficult to retain people if they do that. I think they should should try and uh, turn that round now, sit down with us and see what we can do. A lot of water's under the bridge. A lot of these pilots aren't coming back, but there's still some leaving and we need to try and stop that. Mm. So apart from sitting down with you, is there anything else you think that the company should be doing that maybe it isn't doing right now to try and get things back on track? They probably need to reverse some of those cuts. I mean, that's why people are leaving, because they were deep cuts into the uh, contract that they paid us and and the cabin crew as well, all, all of us. I mean, there's a sort of bit of... You know, they're down in hotels recruiting. I remember a time uh, before the pandemic when I would arrive at work and I'd see long lines of people waiting to uh, walk through Cath- the doors of Cathay Pacific and take a job. Mm. Now Cathay Pacific's coming having to come downtown, rent fancy hotels to try and persuade people to join. Uh, you know, it's, it's not difficult. They, they cut salaries a lot. They cut uh, the package a lot and people are leaving. So they're in their new recruitment drive, um, they're offering a monthly basic salary of 9,100 Hong Kong dollars. They say the monthly pay for new flight attendants could reach 18,000 Hong Kong dollars. How does that compare? Is it competitive compared to other airlines? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I probably know more about pilots than the cabin crew. 
I would say overall, when you look at these sorts of numbers, when it comes to pilots anyway, I could show you a lot of places where pilots are paid way more than Cathay. I could also find some places where it's probably about the same or less. Mm. But you only really need to look and see what's happening. People are walking out the door. Cathay are finding it difficult uh, to get people to show up to, to these recruitment fairs. They're all quite glitzy. But I don't know if you have a look in those pictures and see how many people are actually there. I'm not too sure. Mm. So the tourism board plans to spend $100 million on promoting Hong Kong. The airport authority is going to give out half a million airline tickets. What, what do you make of that scheme? Is that well, I mean, help? it's great to see the partnership between uh, Hong Kong and uh, Cathay. That's encouraging. That's really good. But I don't know. I'm not too sure Cathay Pacific Management's played its part in all of this. The pilots want to help. They mm. really want to help and sit down and collaborate. I'm not too sure Cathay Pacific uh, Management do at the moment. I hope, they, I hope they will. I hope they will. I hope we can actually uh, provide seats for all those tickets. It's not clear to me that we can. Well, I was going to say, if, if half a million people took up those tickets, are there enough flights? I don't know. If they took them up tomorrow, they shouldn't, certainly would not be. I'm not quite sure what the plan is for that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, listen, I think Cathay Pacific has always enjoyed the support of the government. I think we've been very lucky with that here in uh, uh, Hong Kong, and I think everyone's very grateful. And look, don't get me wrong. I've had a great career with Cathay Pacific. It's a great airline, and I know people enjoy flying with it. I just hope we can, uh, that can continue. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. That's Paul Weatherhills, Chairman of the Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And around Asia-Pacific stock markets this morning, the SX200 uh, up about 0.4%. Japan stocks, uh, the Nikkei 225, off 0.1%. Uh, South Korea, the Cosby down half a percent. And if we take a look uh, where Hong Kong stocks are likely to open, it seems like the Hang Seng uh, is going to open close to a 13-year low, down about 100 points this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for the final Money Talk of the Week. Back chats coming up in a moment with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast, fine and dry. Uh, temperatures going to be around 30 degrees and fine in the next couple of days. There is a red fire danger warning in force, 24 degrees, 52% relative humidity. Times 8.32, Barry O'Rourke has the half-hour news. A charity which focuses on eye care says Hong Kong people are not paying enough attention to their eye health after its survey found more than half of respondents had never had their eyes checked. Orbis, together with the Hong Kong Ophthalmological Society, surveyed more than 6,000 residents last month and found 40% were at a medium or high risk of contracting an eye disease. Emmy Lee is the society's vice president and a volunteer doctor at Orbis. I think the main reason is that many of the people, they thought that if they are seeing okay, seeing fine, then they don't need an eye checkup. But in fact, that is not the case because there are many eye diseases that in the early stage, the symptoms are, are not that obvious. So if you at a particular age, like over 50 year old, or you have uh, any family history of eye disease, you're at higher risk of eye diseases, it may be worthwhile that you receive a comprehensive eye checkup, even if you do not experience any uh, eye symptoms or eye discomfort. Turning overseas, NATO countries have promised to continue sending military hardware to Ukraine for as long as it takes to help it defend itself in the war with Russia. They've said they'll increase the manufacture of weaponry where needed. Representatives of NATO have been meeting in Brussels along with other member states of the so-called contact group on Ukraine. The US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin said the group remained united and determined to support Ukraine for the long haul. We discussed ways to do even more to train Ukrainian forces who are making such impressive use of their new capabilities. 
and we push to galvanize our industrial bases to fire up production for the systems to defend Ukraine, even while meeting our own security needs. A jury in the U.S. state of Connecticut has ordered the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay $965 million U.S. million in damages to the families of victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. Twenty small children and six adults were killed in the mass shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. Jones, a far-right broadcaster, falsely claimed for years that the incident was staged by the U.S. government to try to introduce tighter gun controls. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue reports from Washington. It's an absolutely vast award, and so far we haven't been able to find an example of, of such a big award against an individual rather than a corporation or anything like that. Now, that's not to say these families are going to see any of that money or anything like that kind of money, uh, because Alex Jones doesn't have it. And, of course, there is another defamation trial coming down the road at him as well. So there's another group who uh, will be expecting these sorts of uh, awards to be paid out. We'll see what, what money actually shakes down at the end of